Anyway, the gospel, this is, uh, the series we're in is called Gospel 2.0, and one of the dangers of, of spending some time in the Pauline letters is that sometimes the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel, which is, of course, that Jesus died for our sins, rose from the grave, and conquered death, and that we all have the opportunity to live an eternity in heaven with Jesus. Because of that, sometimes that message itself is kind of lost in the details because we're more talking about how the early church interpreted the teachings of Jesus and interpreted the teachings of the disciples and then lived them out in their everyday lives. But I want to make sure that we mention, at least from time to time, that the the word gospel literally does mean good news and that the best news you could ever hear is the fact that Jesus died for you and that we can have eternal life through him and not just eternal life later after we die, but better life here on this earth. Amen? How many of you would raise your hand if you're a believer and say that your life is better now than it was when you, are, than you weren't a Christian? Raise your hand. I better see a bunch of hands go up because I knew some of you before you got saved. And no, I actually didn't know most of you before you got saved. But anyway, um, life is better with Jesus. I believe that with all my heart. And Paul knew that. Paul understood that. And largely, we have so far been in the writings of Paul. Today, we're going to move to a little bit different kind of letter. We're going to go to the, the book of 2 Timothy. And 2 Timothy is not like the other letters we've been in Galatians um, before for the last two weeks. And that was a letter to an entire church full of people. A letter that was designed not only to minister to that church, but to be distributed to all the churches around at the same time. Second Timothy is not just another letter to the saints as a whole. It's not a letter that was designed necessarily to be circulated. It was more written to one specific saint, Timothy. He was the protege of Paul. Second Timothy was written, we believe, from prison. Now, Paul had been in prison once before, but when Paul was in prison the first time, it was kind of what I was I want to call like a minimum security kind of deal. You know, kind of like those famous people who just cheated on their taxes, the kind of prison they go to, right? It's more like a country club than a prison. The first time, Paul was able to basically just be under house arrest. People were able to come and go to bring him things or to deliver letters to him or from him. Uh, they brought him food. They brought him cookies, you know, probably brought him a Starbucks once in a while. I don't know. Um, they were able, some of you didn't even catch that. You're just like, yeah, Starbucks. No, he didn't. They didn't have that back then. Wake up. Anyway, but it, it, was, it was really not a big deal. And Paul understood pretty much through the whole time during that imprisonment that his life really wasn't in danger. It was just a temporary setback. Well, this time it's different. In this imprisonment, Paul knows that Rome was out to get him and they caught up with him and that his days are numbered. Now imagine being in prison and you know that eventually your prison sentence is going to end in death. What kind of letter would you write to the people that are not with you, to the people that you've invested your life in, to the people that you've tried to bring along to take your place just in case something like this would happen. That's the kind of letter that 2 Timothy is. It's a letter to a young man, we believe, in Christ at least, who Paul has been bringing along as he goes. He was the pastor, we believe, of the church of Ephesus for a time. And in 1 Timothy, Paul repeatedly tells Timothy, listen, stand up, take control, exert your influence. You are the leader God has put in place in that place. Don't shy away from people. Don't be timid. And whenever you hear a writer writing something like that to a person, it tells you something about that person. Am I right? 
It tells you that Timothy was reserved. He was a little bit timid. He was not one to express his wishes. He kind of hung back a little bit and didn't necessarily deal with the problems as they came. And so this time, Paul is once again writing to him with a little bit different kind of language. You see, I think in this time, Paul understands that his days are numbered, and and it's also, I believe, true that Paul is seeing the infiltration of false teachers all around him. Paul, throughout his ministry, constantly wrote to the churches about the people who were coming behind him. He would go and start a church, and then people would come behind him and try to sow seeds of of incorrect truth in those churches, and Paul was constantly writing back to correct them. Well, in in 1 Timothy, he tells Timothy, some people have gone astray. Some people have followed the wrong way. Some people are, you know, not in, going in the right direction. In 2 Timothy, the verbiage changes to all have gone astray. All are following their own ways. Everybody has deserted us. That kind of language. And so it almost feels like Paul is a little bit depressed. It feels like Paul understands what is coming. And he's getting a little sad. And yet even in that, Paul does not write to Timothy to whine or to say, you know, hey, everything's coming to an end and things are so bad and I wish you were here. I mean, he does kind of say, I wish you were here and he wants him to come, but he's not whining about it. Instead, in this letter, Paul gives him a pep talk. He pushes him. He tries to get him to go further and deeper and harder. And that's the kind of letter this is. And so 2 Timothy is a special letter because it was wrote by a person who knew that his days were numbered and the person he's writing to, Timothy, was the one who was going to come behind him and take his place. Timothy would be the next Paul, or at least that's what Paul intended. He seems a bit discouraged, but he doesn't write that way. And so we're going to jump into first, or 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 21. Let's see what Paul has to say to his young protege. Remind everyone, he says, about these things, referring back, of course, to what he has just written. Your homework is, go read the first chapter and a half, and then you'll know what he's being told to tell them to remember, right? You guys aren't used to getting homework, are you? Anyway, remind everyone about these things and command them in God's presence to stop fighting over words. Such arguments are useless and they can ruin those who hear them. Work hard so that you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. Be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains the word of truth. Avoid worthless, foolish talk that only leads to more godless behavior. This kind of talk spreads like cancer. As in the case of Hymenaeus and Philetus, they have left the path of truth, claiming that the resurrection of the dead has already occurred, and in this way they have turned some people away from the faith. How would you like to be the people that Paul called out by name in one of his Gospels? Boy, I bet those guys knew they were in trouble, didn't they? You guys don't care, I can tell. Moving on, but God's truth stands firm like a foundation stone with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his and all who belong to the Lord must turn away from evil. In a wealthy home, some utensils are made of gold and silver and some are made of wood and clay. The expensive utensils are used for special occasions 
and the cheap ones are for everyday use. If you keep yourself pure, you will be a special utensil for honorable use. Your life will be clean, and you will be ready for the master to use you for every good work. All right. Let's sit down in the text for a moment. As he starts off, as I said before, he reminds them of some things. He tells them that the things he has just said are things that he wants Timothy to continue to keep before the people. Um, it seems like, as a parent, you, you understand this is a truth, that if you tell your kids something once, it's not enough. Am I right? You have to keep telling them, and you have to remind them of it over and over again. And unfortunately, that's often the case in the church. And so that's what, essentially, Paul is telling Timothy to do. Don't stop talking about this. Remind everyone about what I've just told you. And then he commands them in God's presence, to stop fighting over words. Paul seems to be encouraging Timothy in this verbiage to take charge, to overcome his timidity. He will need to be strong and forceful in his leadership, just as Paul has always been. In fact, some of Paul's um, partners actually felt like Paul was almost a little bit too forceful. Paul often offended because he was so task-oriented and wanted people to follow his lead. But Timothy will need to grow in his strength, and so he's to command them, not just ask them, command them. He goes on to say, in God's presence. That word that's translated in the Greek means to be in front of or in the presence of, in the sight of. It's almost like he's saying, with God as your witness, tell them. Command them with God watching so that they know this is serious business. I do this when I do weddings. When I do a wedding, I usually try to remind the couple if they're getting married in the church and if I'm doing it, that they are choosing to do their wedding vows in the presence of God. And if they're doing their wedding vows in the presence of God by choice, now you and I know God is everywhere. Are we okay on that? But if they're choosing to do their wedding vows in front of God, I make a special point of saying to them, listen, God is going to see what you're doing, and he's the one who invented marriage, so you better take this seriously. Wouldn't it be great if we took marriage a little more seriously in these days? But I always try to remember people, listen, friends, God is watching, and he commands Timothy, listen, with God as your witness, go and command them. And then he says this this wonderful thing about not fighting over words. But we're going to come back to that because he touches on it a few more times. First, I want to jump ahead just a little bit. Let's talk about the part where he says that he is to work hard and be a good worker. One that does not need to be ashamed. Um, Again, maybe Paul is trying to speak to Timothy's timidity and encourage him in his lack of self-confidence to work hard because working hard is one of the best ways you can overcome a lack of confidence. I've learned this because, to be perfectly honest, I'm not a very confident person sometimes especially when it comes to proclaiming the gospel. Now, I've said this before. Some of you have heard this before, but I'm going to say it again just to kind of clue you into where I'm at because I always want to be transparent. I want you to know who I am and what I'm about. I can talk in front of people. That doesn't scare me. In fact, I can talk for any length of time with or without warning on any given topic with or without information. I can filibuster, my friends. That's what the political world calls that. In college, they're called essay questions, right? I loved essay questions because if you write enough about something, they have to give you credit, right? And I could write a, I could write a book. 
I mean, I could write, I just wrote everything I knew about that even remotely related to the topic, and the teacher's like, wow, that was impressive. I had one teacher tell me, um, yeah, nice try, zero points. <laughs> you obviously knew nothing about the topic you were writing about, but I appreciate the effort, you know, two pages later, you know. Anyway, but that's me. I, I can talk in front of people. In fact, I'm more comfortable up here than I am talking to a person I don't know face-to-face. That's just the reality of introverts and how they work. But what scares the bejeebers out of me on Sunday mornings is the weight and the heaviness of the responsibility that I have before God to speak for Him. Because if that part is taken for granted and if that part isn't done right, I'm in trouble. Because God will hold me accountable someday for the fact that I didn't do the work. And so what I'm trying to say to you is that I think Paul was trying to tell Timothy, listen, I know you're not confident. I know you're worried about this. I know you have doubts about who you are because you're a humble person. That's part of what goes along with humility is wondering, am I the right person? Arlo Newell, one of the great saints of the church of God, once told me, or actually didn't tell me, it was actually in a sermon that he preached at Pain Camp Meeting High, um, Pain Camp, um, Camp Meeting, he said, um, There is always a holy reluctance in those who are called to ministry. A sense of, I shouldn't, or I can't, or I won't, because they don't feel worthy of the mantle that God is trying to place on them. And I always kept that in my heart. And every time I've had some young person come to me and say, I think God might be calling me to worship, I would look for that sign of holy reluctance, that little bit of them that says, I think God wants me to do this, but I don't think I can. Because let me tell you something, you need to look out for the people who say, hey man, God finally got, God finally got it right and he, he's calling me up to the plate, man. He's putting me in. God finally gave me the call and I am ready to go. Look out for that person. Because if there is no worry about whether you can handle what God gives you the right way, there's, there's trouble there. And so what Paul is saying to him is, listen, one of the ways you can overcome that fear is to do the work, to put in the work, to study the scriptures as hard as you can, to spend time in God's word, to know as much as you can about all of the topics that are going on. And and when people come and they teach false doctrine, it's your job to dig into the scriptures and find out why they're wrong and help your people to understand why they need to stay with the truth of the gospel. And when you have done the work, then you can be confident that you have done all you can do, you have been faithful, and it's God's time to pick up and do the rest. Because I gotta tell you, even if you do the work of preparing a sermon and are diligent at it, there's still those weeks where God still isn't in it, and he doesn't show up And on Friday, uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, in my mind, I'm thinking, God, I got a bunch of research, but it doesn't pass the so what test. It's not it. I I don't have what you want yet. It doesn't make sense. I can't get through it. When I try to preach through it, it doesn't work. There's always that sense of needing God to show up. And you know what? God has a sense of humor. He loves to talk on Saturdays. Or early Sunday morning in the shower is another time. And listen, I understand that that those two things have to go together. There has to be a word from God that tells you, this is what I want you to say today. This is the framework. This is the point. This is what I want you to go after. But listen, if you don't do the work, then you are very much susceptible to failure. 
And I know some pastors and I know some leaders and some lay teachers who will say, I don't really study. You know, when I study during the week, I usually find that God usually contradicts me anyway or he takes me another direction. And so I don't study anymore. I just get up on Sunday morning at 4 a.m. and I pray that God would give me a message and God gives me a message. They usually preach like that too when they do that. (laughs) Because they're trying to convince you that God is somehow controlling them instead of them. And you know what I would say to a person like that? You have to have God. (laughs) You have to have the Spirit say, this is what you're preaching. You have to have that part of it. It has to come through. But if you don't do the work, according to Paul, then you are susceptible to it not necessarily being God who's speaking through you. Because sometimes we're just tired, and it's our tiredness that is talking. You ever heard a preacher who you could tell something bad happened that week, and he was just ornery? Please, please tell me it wasn't me. <laughs> Although that has happened, I'll confess. It, it could be anything. Listen, whatever that person's going on, that's the stuff we feel strongly about. And sometimes we misinterpret as pastors, you know, maybe it isn't God who's speaking that. Maybe it, it's just <laughs> the lasagna we had last night at 10 o'clock before we went to bed. Unless you do the work, you don't know if what, God, if what you're hearing is really God or not. And so God wants us to put in the work. And listen, that doesn't just go for pastors. If you want to hear from God and you want to be able to discern that this is the voice of God, then you have to work hard and be in the word so that when God speaks, you can say, I know that's God because it resonates with what he has said in his word. You see, Paul was constantly dealing with people who just decided to make up their own doctrine, their own theology, or take what God said and just change it a little bit and take people in their own direction. And we have enough of that going on today. We need, as Christians, to work hard and study so that we will know when it's God speaking and when it's not. The best way to become worthy, as Paul says, of God's approval As he says that, the best way to do that is to make sure that we are good workers who correctly explain the word of truth. And you know what? Again, some weeks it doesn't matter how hard I work, I don't get the okay to go forward until late in the week. But you know what? If I ever get to the place where I'm not doing the work, then I'm in serious trouble. And so are you. Because I'm no longer speaking what God says. I'm just winging it. Paul is very very assertive about this and often in these situations where he's trying to bolster his temper he tends to overstate the fact and so Timothy I think gets the word through that he needs to work hard that he needs to put in the time and then after he finishes talking to Timothy about that about being a a worker who in the older translation rightly divides the word of truth you've heard that terminology some of you have in the older Bibles he then goes on to talk about this speech thing and and he hits the theme of words again So he says it once in verse 14. He says, stop fighting over words. Such arguments are useless and they can ruin those who hear them. Then he goes on in verse 16 and said, avoid worthless, foolish talk that only leads to more godless behavior. In other words, living without regard for what God wants. That's what godless means. And then he hits it again in verse 23, which we didn't read and you don't have on the screen, in verse 23, which is beyond the scope of what we read, he reminds them again. He says, again, I say, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. Now, why does he keep going back to this theme? Why does he touch on it three times? I believe it's because it's important for one thing. 
But there are three specific problems with worthless, foolish, ignorant talk that leads to arguments all the time, especially as they manifest themselves in the body of Christ. When we are talking about things that essentially don't matter, that's what Paul means. If you're fighting about things, arguing about things, bringing up things that are secondary issues that really don't matter, there is three dangers to that. Let me share them with you one at a time. First and foremost, it is a distraction. When we're fighting about things that don't matter, it is a distraction for those um, who, who are in the argument, and it keeps them from living out the mission of Christ. Some Christians spend so much time debating and arguing amongst themselves that they never actually get around to going to all the world and making disciples of all nations. Do you recognize that language as the mission of the church? That's what we're supposed to do. Nowhere does Jesus say, hey, argue until you know you're right. Nowhere in Scripture does Jesus say that. Nowhere does he say, defend your theology against all those who disagree with you until you absolutely know you have put them down. That feeling is human, fleshly, earthly, sin nature, kind of earthly. Listen, Jesus never commanded us to do that. You cannot make disciples if you're busy arguing theology. Now, please don't misunderstand me. We should know what we believe. We should be able to defend what we believe. I'm not saying we should be ignorant. We already talked about working hard and studying the scriptures and understanding how this goes. But there are things worth arguing about and there are things that are not worth arguing about. And I have served in the church for over 25 years, I think 26 or 7 now. And most of the arguments that I have heard come up in church are not about the things that matter. I gotta tell you, they're just not. What kind of music should we do in the church? You know, the church has been around for, what, 2,000 years now? How many different styles of music do you suppose have raised their heads during that time period? And yet we act as if the music that was playing when we got saved is the most holy music. Hello? A hundred years from now, I don't even know if they'll still have music the way music is going, to be perfectly honest. But a hundred years from now, they're going to be doing something completely different than what we're doing and giving God glory all the same. Music doesn't matter it's a preference issue and i understand people get irritated well i like this kind of music and that's how i worship so i'm going to go to a church that does it that's why we do all different styles of music so we can keep everybody equally unhappy (laughs) it doesn't matter Listen, we argue about all kinds of stuff that doesn't matter, um, and, and, and it distracts us. It distracts us from doing what we're supposed to do. Um, all you care about when you argue is winning the argument, and it has a tendency to cause you to dehumanize the other person in the process. So not only does it distract you, but it forces you and it causes you to think less of the other person because they disagree with you. And we've made a whole lifestyle out of argumentation. Um, apologetics can be a great thing, but listen, if you take arguing to the point that it's your life work, I've got news for you, Jesus is not in that. He didn't say, argue with your neighbor until they agree with you. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. So if you argue with yourself all the time, I guess you're allowed to argue with your neighbor. But other than that, that's not what Jesus commanded. Listen, 
If we're spending all of our time arguing, trying to be right, it distracts us from the mission that God gave us, which is to be witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to testify to what God did and is doing in our lives, in the present, and in the moment. Friends, I get to get up here every single Sunday morning and share with you what God's doing in my life. Because first I hear the sermon and have to like get my life in order, and then I give it to you. So what you're hearing on Sunday mornings is essentially what God did to me this week, and I'm hoping he does the same thing to you, because I don't want to be alone in this. But listen, our job is to testify of what God has done and what he's doing and to share the good news of the gospel with our lifestyle first, with our love and our words second. And then finally, if if we decide to to talk about it or, or to try to do some other kind of thing, then we do that. But we're to live it out. We're to be witnesses of what Jesus has done. And you can't do that if you're arguing with your brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's number one. It's a distraction that keeps us from living out the mission of Christ. The second thing is this. It can can ruin those who hear them. I love that, that statement there. It's in verse 14. Such arguments are useless, and they can ruin those who hear them. Did you catch that? It's not the person in the argument that he's talking about. It's the people standing along the sidelines of the argument. And, you know, in America, we love a good argument, amen? Half of the reality shows on television are about people arguing all the time. I don't know about you, but I get stressed when I watch that kind of stuff. I just don't like it. But Americans love to hear a good argument. That's why we're, that's why we're on Facebook as much as we are, because all we got to do is say, blah, and somebody will argue with it, right? The sky is blue. No, it isn't! Seems like that's how Facebook is these days. The world is round. No, it's not! Well, that's actually a real thing, the flat thing. Anyway, I didn't mean to use that. It just seems like everybody's looking for an argument. But, but listen, it's because they like to watch it. But listen, it impacts. When we argue with each other, it impacts those who are hearing us. And people around us, especially those who don't know Christ, should not hear us arguing because it doesn't do them any good. You see, if we're busy arguing with each other, not only are we distracted from our mission, but the people that are seeing us argue hear the things we're arguing about and they won't take us seriously after that. But we get sucked into this so easily. I, I'm, again, I've been here 10 years and I'm losing my memory, so I probably have shared this with you before, but there was a time in high school. Um, God called me to ministry when I was in seventh grade at the Michigan Youth Convention. And so during my high school years, Believe it or not, I was honestly trying to and striving to live my life for Jesus as best I could because I knew that he was calling me into ministry and I wanted to do everything I could to serve him. It just like, I heard that preacher talk, I responded to the call to ministry and God did something that day and he made me want to be as good as I could be. And so uh, to be honest, I got a little judgmental. Uh, I started kind of becoming legalistic because I was trying so hard not to let God down. But during high school, I went to a Baptist school, and you would assume that everybody at a Christian school would act like Christians, right? I got news for you. Our school is where the kids that got kicked out of the public school got sent because they couldn't, they couldn't go anywhere else. But still, a lot of them had Christian parents who went to churches, but it was a Baptist school, and I was a Church of God person. And if you don't know, Church of God is kind of in the Wesleyan tradition. Now, again, we don't talk about that a lot because, honestly, the differences between Wesleyanism and Calvinism are all in the secondary issues. They're not in the core issues. We're all going to heaven because we all believe in Jesus and that he died for us and that we need to follow him. Amen? Amen. But my teachers decided that I was a good target for debate. 
And I was very thankful for those teachers. I had one that was the first person to tell me, Jeffrey, people are following you. And I'm like, <laughs> like right now? It's like, no, no, no. Dude, people watch what you do and, and they're following. People are looking to you as an example. I'm like, I don't want to be an example. He's like, too bad. Because <laughs> you, people are following you and you need to be careful what you do. Because people are watching your example and they're following your, and that freaked me out at first, but that same teacher helped me to learn how to live for Christ. And he saw something within me that encouraged me and, and he continued to do that. So I'm very thankful for them. But at the same time, that, that same teacher was going to school for his degree at, at Pensacola every summer. He didn't quite have his degree done yet. And he would come back and he would send me the doctrinal papers that he wrote and say, hey, I know you believe the opposite of this. So I just thought I wrote this paper for a class. And I just thought you might want to read it so you could see our perspective. Translation, we're right, you're wrong right? And so I'd read the paper, and I'd send him my, you know, I, I didn't send, we didn't have email back then. I would talk to him and tell him, well, this is what I think, and he'd tell me this is what I think, and, and we'd go back and forth, and I finally got so tired of it. I said, listen, I don't want to do this anymore. You, you believe what you believe, and I understand that. I believe what I believe, and we've had enough conversation about, let's just set it aside. So anyway, we go on this trip, and most of the kids that are with me on this trip, my classmates, they grew up, they, most of them went to Baptist churches and stuff, and they held on to that eternal security thing. Like these kids had prayed the prayer, and they believed that was a license that they could do whatever they want now. God got to take me because I prayed the prayer so I can live like the devil if I want. That's how they behave. We had kids that had, had uh, chewing tobacco in their lockers all the time. You know, like we had kids that sneak out behind the bus barn and smoke, and everybody knows those two things will send you straight to hell, right? Yeah. <laughs> At least that's what I thought at the time. Anyway, but they just, they did not act like Jesus and it bothered me. And so we're on this one trip and we're sitting around the hotel room and we're actually having a spiritual conversation. And I'm like getting all excited inside because these guys that are normally kind of hard and cold and don't want to talk about God are opening up and they're starting to share some of what they believe and some of what's happening in their families and some of that stuff. And we're just having these great conversations and I'm like, yes, this is why God put me here. This is, this is, what I, this is awesome. And so we're having these spiritual conversations and we're, we're making progress and we're just doing stuff. And, and again, I'm not talking. They're doing most of the talking. I'm just asking questions because I have no idea how to do this. But there's growth happening and I can see it. And then one of them brings up, well, don't you go to a church of God? Yeah. Well, don't they believe in something? He brought up either end times, eternal security, or predestination or something. I don't know, one of those three topics. I don't remember which one. And I said, yeah, we, we do believe differently than you guys do. And he's like, well, tell us what you believe. And I thought, okay. So I did. And they're like, yeah, but what about this scripture? What about this? You know what? I, I, I don't really know how to articulate it, they said. So let me, let me go get Mr. Lowry because I know he can help me articulate what our position is. And so he went and got the teacher that I always argued with. And we were good friends. So he came in, sat on the bed, and we continued to have the conversation, and, and he started firing shots, and you know, I got, I got a scripture for that, and I fired him right back, and he fired, and I fired, and we were both doing that thing that you do when you're arguing where you listen, not to listen, but just to formulate your answer, right? You do that? Yes, you do. Every last one of you does, but we shouldn't. And so we're firing back and forth and we're having a great debate. Nobody's winning, nobody's losing until I look around the room and all of those kids that were in that conversation, gone. 
They walked out sometime in the debate, and I didn't even notice. Listen, when we debate and we argue over things that don't matter, the people on the sidelines are the ones who get hurt. Because they recognized almost immediately, we're not even in this conversation, so we might as well go. Secondly, some of the things that the world sees us fighting about, even they can see how ridiculous they are. And they do not apply to their lives. So why would they join in the conversation with us if we're not talking about anything that relates to them in the least? Listen, it says, Paul says, that the people hearing will go to ruin. And that ruin comes because they will never hear the gospel from us because they're so busy trying to avoid all of the arguments that they hear happening. Like me, I think a lot of people don't want to be where there's arguing and backbiting and complaining. And so the second one is, it hurts, it ruins those who are listening and who hear them. Wow, I'm out of time. Let's speed this up. The third one is this. It leads to godless behavior. Godless doesn't necessarily mean what you think it does. You, you might think by godless like Adolf Hitler, right? He was a godless person, no question. But that's not necessarily what it means. Godless simply means living for ourselves without concern for what God wants, right? It, it, it does mean that we're living without regard for anything that God wants. So, so you can abstain from all the things that you're supposed to abstain from as a believer and still live a godless life. Um, if you claim to follow God, but you're too busy fighting with your brothers and sisters in Christ about all the minute details of theology, then essentially you've made it about you and not about God, and that means that you're living in a way that is godless because you are not taking into consideration what God wants in the least. There are a lot of people in churches every Sunday living a godless life because they aren't doing what God commanded them to do simply and completely. For instance, love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? That's the first and greatest commandment. That's the one thing we're all supposed to do. Well, we can't really do that, though, until we solve the issue of the gospel saying in one place that it's heart, soul, and mind, and in the other place it's heart, soul, mind, and strength. How do we reconcile those two scriptures together? Let's take some time and argue about that. That's kind of how we do it, isn't it? Instead of just loving God, we look for something we can debate about. Ridiculous. And we need to clarify what style of worship is really the most loving to God before we go forward. Eh. How about love your neighbor as yourself? Well, I don't hate my neighbor. Isn't that enough? According to Jesus? No. It's not enough. It's not enough to not hate your neighbor. Jesus says, love your neighbor, and then he tells a story about someone actively loving a person that didn't love them back. That's what Jesus said we're to do. Make disciples of all nations. Well, first we need to decide what method of evangelism we're going to use, which is best. Evangelism explosions, four spiritual laws, lifestyle evangelism, or maybe we should just baptize people into the kingdom, like before they get saved, we'll take them and hold them under the water till they repent, <laughs> and then we'll let them out. Personally, I think that last one would be the most efficient. You know, how do you do it? What's the best way? To, let's discuss this until we all come to an agreement that my way is best, right? No, make disciples. Baptizing them. We need to make sure first that everyone is convinced that our method of bas baptism is the right way. Are you aware that some churches dunk? We dunk. 
when we have our baptism service, there will be a pool right over here or maybe in the middle. I don't know, probably over there. There will be a pool over there, a little. Um, it's actually one of those inflatable hot tubs from Walmart. <laughs> we aren't going to turn on the bubbles. Don't worry. But we will get in the tub and we will fully submerse that person as much as is humanly possible in that little tub. Because you don't get saved in spots. Why would you get wet in spots? Amen? But there are other churches that don't do it that way. You know what they do? They sprinkle you. They just throw water at you. They splash you, which in my view means that you're only partially cleansed. (laughs) Does it matter? If the heart is in the right place, does it matter how you get wet? There was a comedian when I was growing up that said, we need to just do the baptismals like two inches deep and ten foot wide and the holy rollers can roll through and as they roll through, they get wet all over and you line up all the Presbyterians and all the sprinklers on the side and they get sprinkled as the people go through and everybody will be happy. Does it matter? No. Baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus says. Um, I lost my place. Teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded them. Well, I'm trying to straighten out the theology of all my Christian friends first. We wouldn't want people coming into our church and teach them the wrong theology, would we? So before we teach the lost, we better get it right ourselves. So let's argue and debate about it instead of doing it. Listen, all of that does not take into consideration God's will. God said, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them everything that I have commanded you. That's what he said, and that's what we should be doing. Enough with the excuses. Enough with the endless, empty conversation that does nothing but promote fights and arguments. Instead of talking, we need to act. We need to do. When we argue and debate, we are fighting for what we want, not what God wants, and that's what the Bible calls godlessness. Paul ends by talking about some cooking utensils. Personally, I find this part a little offensive. You know, there's common utensils and there's special utensils. You know, you all know what he's talking about. Some of you have good china. How many of you have good china in your house? Anybody? Raise your hand. I want to see. How many of you have good china in your house? How many of you have never eaten on that good china? Yep. We have my grandma's china. We've never eaten on it. You know what? Some of it got used at the baby shower or at the wedding. <laughs> I keep saying baby. Wedding shower. One thing at a time. Um, some of it got used as decorations in the wedding shower. We've never eaten on that. See, I think Paul's analogy is messed up. I'd rather be the common stuff that gets used all the time. But Paul's analogy is this. Listen, if you keep yourself pure, then you will be an honorable instrument to be used in the best possible way that God can use you. And that's the imagery. You don't want to be a common instrument who's not good enough to make the cut for, for those times when God really needs somebody special. But his whole point to Paul is this. You need to be a vessel that is ready because of your purity and because of your heart to be used by God however he needs to use you. And friends, that is what I would invite you to today. To be a vessel that is ready for God's use by keeping yourself pure and avoiding unwholesome talk avoiding the arguments, avoiding the debates. Know what you believe and be ready to give an answer. But don't spend time endlessly debating with other believers when there are unsaved people in this world that just need to know God loves them. Let's get that done first and then we'll worry about the rest. Father, I thank you for this time together.
and for the patience of your people today. I thank you for these words of Paul that at first glance just look like kind of some common instructions about stopping people from fighting. But God, we know that our world is ruled today by words. There are words everywhere we look. On Facebook, on Instagram, all of our social media, we we hear things on the news that disturb us and that stir up arguments. Our whole world is obsessed with words and it seems like we're obsessed with trying to get the upper hand in every conversation that we have. But God, that's not who you were. Jesus came to have simple conversations with simple people so that they could understand your heart and your method and your grace and your mercy and how much you love them. I pray that you would help the talk that comes out of our mouths to express to people how loving our Heavenly Father is and how much God wants them to experience His grace just as we have. Put in our mouths the words of the gospel itself. The good news that Jesus came to this earth and died on a cross so that we could accept the eternal life that you've given us through his sacrifice and follow you forever. Help us, Father, never to live godless lives, but to always do that which we feel you would choose for us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.